Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, the radio show all about traveling like a boss by being your own boss. Stay tuned for weekly interviews featuring guests that have built their own online businesses. If you would like to have access to our entire back catalog, visit travellikeabosspodcast.com for instant access. And here's your host, Johnny SD. Hey everyone, this is Johnny and welcome to episode 99 of the Travel Like Boss Podcast. I'm here with Derek Pankow in Austin, Yeehaw, Texas. Hello, hello. How's it going? Amazing. So we are at a co-working space here in Austin. Uh, what, is, what is this called? Chicone Collective. And you worked out of here for a bit? Yep. Two months, two, three months. If you guys recognize Derek's voice, he was on the podcast about six months ago. In, no. No, longer than that. It's been a year. Probably. I've been here a year. Probably a year and three or A year and four months is my guess. Wow. So, he, yeah, he was on the podcast a while back when we met in Chiang Mai. And you've been living in Austin for how long now? Close to a year. I think about 11 months. What, what made you come here um i think i just wanted to go back to the u.s for a bit mm-hmm. uh and i didn't want to go to san francisco because it was really expensive and i wanted to try somewhere new uh, and i heard really good things about austin um and i thought i need i thought i wanted to be in the u.s for um manufacturing purposes uh but it just turned out that i was wrong and it's better to be in asia for that <laughs> so what businesses were, were you working on when you moved here to to austin uh, I was working on I was I was working on Teespring. Uh, I had an Amazon FBA business running as well. Um, yeah, and uh, I was also working on designing a new product from scratch. So I had a, I had a bunch of different things going on. I just looked it up. It was episode forty three, and I think at that point you were like you were doing a bunch of stuff in, in Chiang Mai, and you were crushing it on Teespring for a while. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what your best months were? I think I made uh, just a little over a hundred thousand. Like I think about a hundred ten thousand dollars in three months. That was probably that is insane. Christmas. And that was in profit. That was profit. Yeah. You made six. What people make with a good job over a year in three months. Yeah. How did that feel? It was great. I mean, it was. Uh, I I guess how did that feel? Like on the one hand, I, it felt amazing. It felt really liberating. Uh, and um, it felt uh. Like a lot of the things I was working hard for were paying off. Um, on the other hand, I was working so hard that I didn't really have time to like to enjoy it that much. It was like, you know, I was literally waking up at 8 a.m., getting to pun space by 9 and just staying there till midnight every day. So from people on the outside, they assumed, you know, they can start selling T-shirts on Teespring on, you know, on Facebook mm-hmm. and they can make 30 grand a month. And... What they were lacking is they didn't have your work ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was a combination of skill, um, you know, the, the knowledge of how to do it. And you spent a lot of money like educating yourself how mm-hmm. to do it, right? Yeah. Do, do you know, did you, do you remember how much you ended up spending just to learn it? Um, I probably spent, I, I joined a mastermind program that was $6,000 and I probably spent a couple thousand dollars on other things. So maybe eight or $9,000 on education. And you were working from morning till night. Yeah. And I, I think that's not what I would be able to do. Like, I, I don't think I could do that on a normal basis. But like at, at that time, it was really clear to me that this is life changing money and that I should really, you know, like milk it for all it's worth while it's happening. It was like a cash grab. almost. It right? was like a cash grab. Uh, and I wasn't the only one doing it. You know, there was um, in the exact same markets as me using the exact same systems. There was at least four or five other people. So it's really whoever can execute the fastest would get the money. And were they all part of the same mastermind or no. h- how did how did they learn it? Do you think? Uh, I don't know. I don't know them. Um, but w- w- it's not hard to spy on each other's designs. So I could see when other people are copying what I'm doing and when uh, like when when we're racing against um, doing the same things. Yeah. Okay. So some people might not actually know what Teespring is. Can, can you sure. quickly just mention what that is? Yeah, so Teespring is a, is a website that lets you upload designs. Uh, and when you sell the designs, Teespring charges um, the cost of the t-shirt and the printing to you. So let's say they charge $9. Uh, and you get to keep the rest. So if you sell a T-shirt for $22 and they charge you $9, you get to keep the difference, $13, I believe. Um, and then you use Facebook advertising to drive traffic to the 
to the t-shirt. So say it costs you um, $6 to acquire a customer and you're making $13. So then you keep $7 as profit. Um, and then you just scale that up to as, as large as you can within that market. And then you replicate it to other markets and do more designs to the markets that you found. Do you mind just talking about some of those markets or designs? Sure. I mean, uh, I did really well in sports um, um, as well as um, pets. So um, things for dog owners. Um, so it, with sports, it was less about... Um, it was less about sports that you watch and more about sports that you do. So things like you know, jet skiing or climbing or like activities that f- people feel proud of rather than like I like to watch football or boxing. So like a typical shirt would have, let's say for like jogging, would mm-hmm. be like, would it be like a slogan? Like I, I run because, you know, because I love it or something like that. Um, yeah. Like, like, best like, runner. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, Running, running was one that I, I I did a little bit in that market, but I I, I didn't do very I, not as well as other other people. But um, yeah, it'd be something like um, I run, um, I run like a turtle walking through peanut butter, but I run anyway. God damn it, or something like that. Okay, F- so fun funny phrases uh, do well. Um, it tends to be either sassy, funny, or um, or pride. So who are the the people that would buy this stuff? Um, it it ranges. Honestly, I've had buyers from across the whole spectrum, but the the best buyers are women, thirty five and older. And why do you think that is compared to like a man in his in his like twenties or? I think the older part is just because they have more money. Um, I think it's also I think the social fabric of the older crew is less less critical. Like if you wear a shirt that's a little bit cheesy and kind of funny and you're 40 years old, it's, it's seen as kind of cute. But if you wear it to like, if you're a sophomore in, in college and you're wearing something like that, like people, I think are, it's less funny. Yeah. And I think people that are younger, but a little bit more brand and fashion conscious, you know, when it's someone who's a bit older, you know, they don't care. They're, they're over it. They're, they have a family. They just, you know, and they want to show off because that is their Trying to enjoy a lot. Like a lot of times when people are a bit older, they don't have that many hobbies. They don't have that much going for them. So whatever their one hobby is, they're really into it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, I do. I do think that that holds true across a lot of e-commerce, though. Like thirty-five plus women. Um, I think that demographic specifically is um, is a really high con- converting demographic, even in not in clothing, but just e-commerce in general. Yeah, I, I think so as well. And I think they're also a little bit less price conscious not not just because they make more money in general but also because they don't have the time or energy to like shop around as much mm-hmm. you know if it was me and I, and I saw one of these shirts that I thought was cool I might say well you know I have the phrase how I wonder how much it would cost for me just to print it myself I would find another site that could let me print a design I might like try to up you know photoshop that design myself you know and to save five or ten bucks while someone who's like a grandma or even you know even someone in their 40s they're not going to do that you know they either they probably don't know how to do it number one and second they don't have the time to do it right you know they're just gonna they're just gonna buy the shirt yeah so do you no longer do teespring i I don't do it anymore i think people listening to this are thinking that is insane you were making thirty thousand dollars a month and you just stopped doing it Mm -hmm. if you were still doing it do you think you could still make some money from it yeah absolutely I, I, i still i'm still friends with people who are doing similar numbers and so why did you personally stop? Um, it was a few reasons. Um, first of all, I don't think I hired the right people um, and didn't build my team in the right way. Um, I hired two Filipino VAs to run my Facebook ads. Um, and when Facebook ads changed and when how Teespring worked changed, um, t- templates, templated designs worked really well for a while. So a lot of shirts that look very similar, but catering it to different people. Uh, and then that stopped working almost completely. Um, like what change made that stop working? I think part of it was the fact that people, I think people just got tired of it is one thing, you know, with people were in any mark, practically any market had seen 40 of these things by now. And they, they just kind of stopped it looking as cool. Um, and I think partly Facebook ads getting more expensive, uh, more competition. It's a number of different factors. Um, so when, when Facebook ads changed, uh, my team would have had to been been retrained completely on everything, um, and I think at that point I had 
enough in savings and I was just really tired and I just, I didn't want to like retrain that team. And I don't think it would have been the right move to retrain that team. Cause then if something changes again, I'd have to retrain it again. And like, I think the, the, if I were to do this business again, I would really have wanted to hire someone who was, uh, us based, um, passionate about internet ad- advertising. They wanted to learn Facebook ads. They could understand Facebook ads so that when something changes, they can make decisions about it and uh, stay up to date on, on you know what the news is, uh, systems that are working today and come up with their own ideas for how to adapt rather than having me have to come up with all the processes and you know adapting the system. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And I remember when we when we last talked in Chiang Mai and you were, you were telling me the reason why you wanted to move to Austin was because you wanted to hire a couple of full-time US-based employees. Mm-hmm. Did that ever happen? No, didn't happen. Well, why did that never happen? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think uh, I think I... I think I tried to make it work with the Filipino team for too long. And then by the time I realized it wasn't working, um, I just didn't want to do that business anymore. And, and it was it was close to zero at that point. You know, we weren't making any money and we hadn't been, been, make, been making money for a few weeks. And then I was like, you know what? I could just I could lay off the team, you know, start over and hire a new team, retrain everyone. Or I could just scrap the business and uh, and start something else new. And at, at that point, my Amazon FBA business was uh, I started it nine months ago and I hadn't been doing any work on it and it was making a thousand dollars a month completely passive that whole time. So I just decided, you know what, this business has been doing passive income for nine months for me already and I'm just going to grow that business now instead. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. And what's crazy is I remember I sat next to you and I watched you work and I, I remember specifically asking you, I said, Derek, if I don't get into Teespring is this something I'm going to regret. Mm. And you thought about it for, for quite a while. And, and, you know, and I think you really wanted to give me like an honest answer. And you looked at me and you said like, no, I, I don't think you're, you're going to regret it. Mm-hmm. And even though at that time you were, I mean, money was pouring in. I mean, you know, that's over a thousand dollars a day on average of profit. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, and it wasn't that you wanted to like hide it from me. You know, you were like, if, if I was going to do it, you, I, I, I honestly think you would have been like, yeah, awesome. You know, and here's some help. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, even at that time, even with all the money was coming in, you were kind of like, I don't think you're going you're gonna to regret it if you don't do it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? Let me just like sit by you and see how it's actually done for, you know, just before I decide if I'm going to do it or not. And I remember you let me, you're like, yeah, go ahead and just observe. And I'm watching you with 10 open tabs <laughs> And I'm watching you juggling different Facebook ads, different spreadsheets, you know, all these designs. And you're like, and you're, you're, you know, working like really, really working for like 12 hours a day, every day from morning till night. And I was looking at us like, I don't think I can even do this. Mm. You know, I can do it on a small scale. I can do it with like one or two designs, but how many designs did you have on, on average? We're putting out, I think uh, close to 50 designs a week. And, and so that's 50 different t-shirts every single week right each of them with their own campaign each right. of them with their own ads i mean it's a, it, it was it was a big empire yeah uh yeah to launch 50 shirts a week you have to um launch 50 different campaigns and each campaign has maybe 20 different keywords in it that you have to research and put together and design the ads for and you have to manage the campaigns from the previous week so you know i have to manage the 50 campaigns that we built last week uh and each week you know a good probably like 40 of them will drop off. So I'm only managing 10, but then that'll add on to another 10 next week. So there's, there's a continuing cycle of like, it's quite a lot of management and, and spreadsheets and data. It's a very data driven business. Yep. And I'm, I'm really bad with data. So <laughs> I think that's why I never got into it. And I, I think at that time, you guys can look back on my income reports. That was, I don't know, I guess a year ago, I think I was making, I don't know, five or 6,000 a month, maybe. Mm-hmm. So I was really happy because you know, maybe I was actually making less than that. I might have been making about 3000 a month or something. Because I remember I was really happy with what I was making. But I would look at what you were making and think, oh, my goodness. Like, that is is like three levels above, you know. Mm-hmm. And if I did jump ship and I started it, there's a chance that I would have done really well as well. I think realistically, it would have taken me one or two months to, like, really learn everything, um, you know, get started. And then... I know for a fact I wouldn't have made 30k a month just because my work ethic uh, and amount of hours wasn't going to be as high. Mm-hmm. So I probably would have made, you know, maybe thousand, two thousand, three thousand a month, or whatever it is. And if I had stopped doing that, that would have been pretty much just gone. Yeah. So I think I was pretty lucky that I 
stuck to my skill sets and decided, let me just keep doing what is working for me. Mm-hmm. And my income has grown much slower, but very steadily. Uh, so over you know this last year, my income has gone from you know three or five thousand a month to like well over ten k a month. And I I don't know if that would have happened if I chased the the dream, the next shiny best thing. Right. And and you actually built assets too, whereas I didn't build any assets. I made it. I made a pile of cash, and then uh, when it was over, I had no cash flow and no assets. You know, from that experience. I mean, it was a great experience. I learned a lot of skills and and made good money. But um, yeah, I'm definitely more interested in things that produce cash flow for the long term business assets that can be sold when it you know once I'm finished and that kind of thing. No. Yeah, that makes definitely makes sense. And to clarify that, like when Derek stopped doing his Teespring campaign, it's gone. It's gone. There's, there's completely no, gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's no Teespring store to sell. There's no brand name to sell. It's just gone, right? Yeah. Um, but with me, like with my dropshipping stores, if I stop doing it, I can sell it usually for, you know, between probably 12 to 18, usually about 18 times revenue. So if it's making a thousand bucks a month, you can usually sell it for eighteen thousand dollars, you know. And but so if you're making three thousand a month, you can make you can sell it for three times that much. Um, so that's that's an asset that not only are you making money while you're running it, but at the end of you know whenever you're selling it, you can also make you know that money back. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to, so I want to talk about what you learned from Teespring mm-hmm. about FBA, mm-hmm. about moving to Austin, cool. about why you're moving back to Chiang Mai, cool. and. I want to also announce that I am officially a Texan resident now. Awesome. So we have a lot to talk about this episode. So let's let's move on to uh, what did you learn from the Teespring campaigns mm-hmm. and how, how is that applying to what you're doing now? Cool. Um, so a few things I learned from Teespring. Like, uh, A, I learned um, that... The people who make a lot of money and the people who make a little bit of money are not usually are very often not doing things all that differently. Like I wasn't doing things all that differently than, you know, someone who's making a thousand dollars a month doing Teespring. All I did was I just scaled it up, you know, like they're launching five shirts a week. I'm launching 50 shirts a week. I hired everyone I could around me in pun space. I literally was like, do you want to make some extra money? Do you know Photoshop? Great. Come work for me. Uh, And we just, we scaled up as fast as we could. Um, and in FBA, it's, it's pretty similar. Like I just went to freedom fast lane, uh, two weeks ago and, um, the people who are doing a hundred thousand dollars a month versus, you know, people who who, versus I'm, I'm currently selling about $13,000 a month. Um, yeah, like we're just, we're not doing things very differently. They're just importing a hundred products instead of, you know, my three or four. Um, so they, they're just executing the system at a much higher scale than I am. Um, so, so that was one lesson. Second lesson is, um, I started to really learn. Well, you know what? Uh, let me interrupt you. Let me sure. just talk about that real quick. Uh, so first, uh, I had Ryan Daniel Moran on the show. Mm-hmm. That was episode 46. Let's see if you guys want to find out about him. He uh, was kind of one of the most vocal guys about his FBA business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he used to have the top selling yoga mat business, mm-hmm. which I think he sold yep. later on. So that's actually one thing that one benefit already of uh, FBA over Teespring is mm-hmm. you can sell that business afterwards because you're building an asset, you're building a brand. Right. Um, so I, do you know how much he sold that, that company for? Did, did he ever mention it? Uh, he, I think he did. I don't re- remember exactly. I don't think he, I don't think it was a large exit from what I understand, but I don't remember. Do you know anything about that? Why did he sell it? I think he actually sold it because it wasn't super profitable. Um, it was a it was an oversized item, so they had a lot of shipping issues. Amazon would only let you uh, they, your your storage for oversized is I think like one tenth of your normal size storage, uh, and it had to be shipped by boat from China. So there was a lot of hassle with the product, and I think uh, they were taking money out of the business early. So with his main business, he didn't take money out. So he was able to grow it exponentially versus with the yoga business, they were um, taking money out to uh, as par- like part of it. And I think it just was, it was growing slowly and was a lot of hassle, I think was the reason they sold it from what I understand. Okay, that makes sense. But it, either way, it made a great case study. Sure, yeah. So Absolutely. I like that. Um, so yeah, so, so let's, well, I don't remember what I was going to say about, but let's move on. Um, so you said with, with so, FBA, <laughs> go on. Sure. What else? Uh, you, oh, sorry. What else do you learn from Teespring? Yeah. Um, I learned how to ev- evaluate business opportunities. Uh-huh. Um, I think it's it's like the internet can be a, a trap for because um, everyone tells you you can make ten thousand dollars a month doing you know whatever system it is. Um, but the the truth is there's different success rates with different business models. So you can make ten thousand dollars a month selling 
multi-level marketing products, but statistically the success rate is like 0.4% chance that you're going to make minimum wage versus Amazon FBA. I think your chances of success are closer to 50%. Um, but nobody will tell you that on the internet, but people that you know in person will. So I think what I learned was uh, how to talk to, uh, how important it is to not get into a business before I know someone in person who's done it uh, and someone who I can ask questions of that I know face to face. So with Teespring, um, I started in Vietnam um, with uh, with um, a friend of mine, Tung. Yeah. Uh, cool. You know. Uh, yeah. So I started. Uh, Tung gave me the, the overall system. Uh, I got a couple courses, went through them, and then I bought him dinner and you know asked him all the questions I had. Uh, and he looked at my first few campaigns, and that that made made a big difference. Um, and then I also learned a lot about uh, masterminding and networking. So uh, I formed a mastermind group. I went into the the Facebook groups in Teespring and said like, Hey, um, any intermediate level sellers want to form a mastermind? And then we we had a mastermind growing. And then um, I joined a couple masterminds. And then I met one of my mentors in person, uh, who ended up introducing me to a lot of the the really big sellers. You know, people who are doing over a hundred thousand dollars a month consistently. So I, I just I learned a lot about networking and how important it is to form groups, join groups and make the effort to go to the conferences and meet my mentors in person and all that stuff. I, I think that's fantastic. Uh, and I think one thing that you you mentioned that a lot of people might not have, you know, really taken to heart is you weren't just kind of like value leeching off of people. You mm-hmm. know, you were like, first off, I think people are very happy to give you guidance and information if you actually do something with that information. Yeah, I agree then, with that. And then are appreciative afterwards. People hate it when they give you good information and you ask 20 more questions without taking any action. Yeah. You know, or if you don't appreciate it. So the fact that you even took them to dinner, the fact that you actually implemented and did something with it, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure that, you know, Tung was much happier to, to keep giving you information. Yeah. Uh, and Tung is a super cool guy. He was on the episode 54 and he is born in Vietnam, taught himself English, mm-hmm. uh, and, ta- you know, basically taught himself like online business from Vietnam, which is probably one of the harder places to, to do anything, you know, mm-hmm. because like for payment processors and all this stuff. Right. So it's almost one of those things where he's a good example of, yes, it's it sometimes, you know, he doesn't have the privilege of being you know, like, you know, from a Western country like America or England or Australia, but he kind of shows that with a bit of hard work and a little bit of research on the side, you can make, you know, you can, you can make any business work from wherever you are, wherever you happen to be. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, super nice guy as well. Uh, so you, you learn it, um, all these great lessons about networking, which mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I, I think is, is fantastic. I think that that's why uh, Austin's a very good place to be. And then mm-hmm. Chiang Mai is an incredible place to be as well. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, any, any other lessons off the top of your head? Um, yeah. What I mentioned earlier about scaling and about hiring the right people or that I didn't hire the right people and build the team in the right way. And that I, that was a huge lesson. Um, but do you think that, I mean, so for example, I know if I wanted to scale and build more dropshipping stores, mm-hmm. I know I can make a profit from it. I know I can do pretty well with it. Yeah. Uh, and I've actually toyed with it thinking if I, if I hire the right team to build it and run it so I don't have to deal with it, I could build these stores not with the intention of running 10 stores because it, it ends up being a lot of work. I think mm-hmm. running one or two stores isn't that much work, but it's still, you know, it's still something that you think about, you know, mm-hmm. especially if something happens. So for example, if I, you know, in a month, I might not have any problems at all. And it doesn't take me any, like really any time to, to run my store. But if one person, they give me the, the wrong shipping address and I, I'll get these emails and, and, and I'll wake up with 26 emails from the same person, you know, saying, you know, I accidentally, you know, I moved and I didn't give you my new address, you know, um, you know, and I don't know my order number. I I don't remember which email I, I ordered from. Uh, you need to, you know, remedy this and send me a new product. And I'll respond back like, first off, I'm, I'm sorry. It's it's Sunday. <laughs> like, no, you know, like we're not in the office. Uh, and then second, you know, like if you moved three weeks ago, why are you telling me now after the item shipped and it's been sitting on someone's doorstep for the last two weeks? Mm-hmm. You know, and these things are, I think with every single business where you are the one responsible, financially responsible for ship, you know, shipping or sending something, it makes it, it like, it, it has an element of uh, it being a bit of a pain in the butt, which is why Teespring and Amazon FBA is so good is because mm-hmm. they can handle that customer service. Yeah. But the, and so the only reason why I would, 
even think about opening 10 stores, dropshipping stores, is because it's an asset afterwards where I would run them each for 12 months and then, and then sell them. Yeah. Um, but that was never my plan because I think I wanted, my goal was always just to like make enough money from my dropshipping stores, mm-hmm. uh, learn enough skills from it, and then do something else. Yeah. Um, so do you, in retrospect, like was it, do you really regret not scaling it bigger? Because maybe mm-hmm. that would have consumed, you know, your whole life and you wouldn't have had time or energy to do anything else. Okay, I, I get the question. Um, I think it would have been fun to scale it bigger. Like, I think it would have been interesting to make $100,000 a month. Like, <laughs> never done that before. Um, I don't know if it'll be that different than thirty or $40,000 a month. Um, I think... Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, long run, like, I, I think I mentioned earlier, like, I intend to get out of internet marketing by the end of 2016. Um, so long run, I don't think any of, whether it's FBA or Teespring, um, I think I would have gotten out eventually anyway. So um, I'm not sure. I think, I think ideally, I would, I would have preferred to build uh, the Teespring business in a way where it could have been sold. Uh, where instead of, and I think the only way to do that would have been to get, to, to get off of Teespring to, you know, find my five major markets, build websites of my own, build email lists, uh, send traffic to my own site, still, still selling t-shirts and, you know, like custom apparel, um, and then shipping it via API through Teespring or through another service. And then once those are built up to a certain level, then those can, those can be sold because they are assets that I own at that point. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, uh, I think it would have been cool to to maintain uh, high numbers, but transform the business into a asset building business and then sell the asset, you know, a year or two down the line. But um, it's not what happened. That's all right. And you know, I think everything in hindsight is 2020, right? Sure. Yeah. Like, it, there's so many things that I would have done differently. But the thing is, I almost feel like if we try to do things a little bit too big too soon, sometimes we just don't do anything at all. Yeah. I think now that I, th- I think the requirements of doing a big scalable business is one, you need to have enough reserve in cash mm-hmm. where you, you don't start stressing, mm-hmm. you know, because if you try to, you know, if you spend extra time and money, you know, building up something, building up the foundation before you start building revenue or without, you know, before you really start being profitable, um, you might end up just never launching. <laughs> You know, so like, let's say you spent the time and energy building up, you know, these websites um, for for Teespring, mm-hmm. you know, on your own platform before you ever sold a single shirt just using right. Facebook ads to Teespring. You know, maybe it could be a huge business right now. That's that's you know, uh, that is an asset. Or you could have went halfway through it, and because you weren't making sales, you either would have ran out of money or ran out of patience and just never launched it. Yeah, I think that would be a mistake for sure. Yeah. So I, I think. The, the way you did it was fantastic for starting. Said, you know, that's the kind of the bootstrap mentality. You're like, let me not build my own platform. Let me start selling on someone else's, right. test the markets, see if it works, have some cash reserved. And then while you're kind of letting that automate and, and run, then you can move, slowly move it to your platform. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of for people listening to this, if you guys are just starting out, I would say do the minimal viable thing, sell on someone else's platform. Uh, and, but keep, you know, keep these big picture things in mind because I, I do think that they are very important and sometimes we get lazy. We were like, it's so much easier to sell and let, um, Teespring handle everything or let Amazon handle everything right. instead of doing it ourselves. Yeah. I like it. So how's your FBA business going now? It's going okay. Um, so like I said, I, uh, I let it run itself for nine months and it was doing a thousand dollars a month, uh, in the last four months, it's increased to about $3,000 a month and this is net profit. Um, so, uh, I have realized that I'm probably in the wrong category. I'm selling in the supplements category right now. And it's, uh, it's extremely difficult. It's pretty capital intensive. Um, and, uh, I'm going to be switching to selling kitchen products, importing from China. And, um, but yeah, to answer your question, I think it's going pretty good. Uh, it takes very little effort to maintain, uh, my current business. So most of the time that I spend right now is on launching new things. Um, and I don't know, it's a, it's one of the easiest, like compared to running a Teespring business, like running an Amazon business is so easy. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's one of the easiest businesses I've ever started and, um, it's super passive. So yeah, Amazon really does do a lot of the work. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I like that a lot. And I've met now so many people who are doing at least decently well on Amazon. I think that's hard because I think most of the people that I've met 
um, at least in Chiang Mai, they were just starting out. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I haven't personally met that many people who are like crushing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are making less than a thousand a month, but then they're spending all that, putting all that money back into the business. Yeah. Um, but I like what you said earlier about the success rate is pretty high. It's really high. Yeah. It's one yeah. of the highest I've seen. I almost feel like if someone actually pulls the trigger and orders the inventory i'm sure the success rate if you count people who thought about selling on amazon sure you know uh or even people who you know signed up for a course you know if you factor all that in it's probably very low you mm-hmm. know just like everything else in the world because a lot of people they just never even get started you know right. they'll buy something with a think about something and they'll just never start yeah but for people who actually launch as in and so for amazon it would be like actually send the items to amazon mm-hmm. right <laughs> you know uh then i could see 100 percent like that success rate being super high because amazon is such a big customer base they just buy everything yeah people just like buy stuff I, I have seen so the reason I said fifty percent is I, I have I do know a few people that launched things and it didn't really work out very well. Um and I think the reason is just bad product selection. Um like it's so important with Amazon to choose the right product, super important. Um but um yeah, I'd say uh so I think I think uh the good thing with Amazon is you'll you'll never I don't know anyone who hasn't been able to sell their inventory. So like if you buy five hundred units uh, the worst case scenario is you'll just sell two or three units a day and it'll take you four months to, to sell out your inventory and you don't have a home run winner and you'll recoup your cash in a few months. Uh, I don't know anyone that just has their inventory stuck and they can't get rid of it. So it, it will sell. Whether or not you can sell at a high enough velocity to build a business around is where the, I think the 50% comes in. But I think that's like that's still a really high percentage. Like the, the percentage of people that succeed in Teespring, I'd say is like 2% probably. Yeah, but I think with Teespring... Kind of because it's such a low barrier to entry. Yeah, I think a lot of people will launch it without really knowing that much. Yeah, you know, they're, not, they're not as invested. Right. Uh, but also, I think selling. So to me, Teespring is almost a digital product, even though technically, you know, technically it's a T-shirt, so it's, you know, it's something physical. Mm-hmm. But I think it's one of those things that are so abstract. When when people buy it, they're not really buying. In their mind, they're not really buying something. You know, like for example, uh, right now I'm using a new um, a new preamp for this for these mics. So if this episode sounds better, uh, leave a comment on episode 99. Let me know because I just spent not a lot of money. It was actually only 100 bucks. I'll, I'll have a photo of it, but it's called a Focusrite Scarlett 2i2, and it's a way to plug in these microphones, uh, these Audio Technica mics into a preamp before it goes to the computer. So it's supposed to sound better. It's supposed to have less noise in the background, especially if you have like nice headphones on. Um, but for example, you know, this XLR cable that connects these things. Um, I just bought two more on Amazon because these are too long, you know, I want, and it's just kind of a pain to, to travel with. So I wanted shorter ones. And in my mind, that is a, I mean, it's just, so it, it is a physical product. It is it has a utility. I know the value of it. In my mm-hmm. mind, I know this is worth $15. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes it very easy for me to buy. When I buy a digital product, uh, you know, let's say an ebook or something, or I think, you know, for whatever reason, you know, when I buy a t-shirt, you know, that has a cool slogan on it, I consider it the kind of the same thing. I'm like, you know what, what what's the actual value of this? Is this is this worth $5 or is this worth $100? You know, and there's no like utility value. It's kind of just this cool idea. Huh. Got it. Yeah. And I think that those things are much harder um, in the beginning when you're starting out, especially as a seller, mm-hmm. because because you might not even know what people are, you know, are willing to pay for it. You right. Know? Like when you sell first sell an ebook, a lot of people's first ebooks, they sell for 99 cents. Sure. <laughs> or they'll, you know, give them away. People don't even want it for free. Right. And then there's also people selling ebooks for like $400. Yeah. And it's, it'd be easy to say, oh, you should just, you know, charge $400 for it. But I think if you don't have, and it can't be, you know, but people just say you have to believe it's worth $400. I think to me, that's a lot of BS because um, you can't just believe it's worth $400 and have people buy it and be happy with it. It has to you know be genuinely worth that much. But at the same time, I think even if it is worth that much, people have a very hard time like launching it and, and, and asking for that price. Mm-hmm. So with... Um, so, you know, like, so with, with Amazon FBA, I think, you know, you can kind of see what everyone else is selling it for. And you could say, well, mine has better packaging or mine has, you know, nicer photos or has, it is made better. Mm-hmm. So I can charge 10% more, 20% more than a competitor. Sure. And you have this baseline and when people buy it, they can see the value 
versus when you sell something, a digital product, um, you know, people, it's hard for them to see the value. You have to paint the value. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think FBA is still one of those things that I should, I regret not pulling the trigger on sooner. I, you know, so my opinion on this right now is that I, I think the gold rush is not over. And I thought it was over. And then I went to Freedom Fastlane and, you know, met a bunch of people who are doing huge numbers. Uh, and, I, you know, talking to them, they're just like, yeah, we're, you know, we're launching five products a month right now. And, you know, they're all hitting. Like, uh, some of them are sourcing at the Canton Fair. Some of them are sourcing through Alibaba. But, like, uh, there is not the sense, from what I can tell, that, like, uh, there's not really a sense that it's gotten a lot harder. And um, so, yeah, I think I think... I think there's still a window. I think there's probably going to be a window for a couple of years for private label. And then I think after that, there will still be a window for many years for improving products. Uh, but yeah, I think I think Amazon FBA as a private label seller, I think there's still a window for at least another couple of years. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I think at this point, especially like the next time I have some free time, um, I'm gonna I'm definitely going to do it because I don't really mind if I lose 10 grand at this point Yeah, you know, in inventory. And I think... For someone who has zero income and has to borrow ten grand, I don't know if that's what I would recommend doing for the your very first thing. Mm-hmm. I'll probably tell you to freelance or something, to be honest, um, or maybe even like write like a Kindle book or something. But I think at this point, like it's for me, you know, I I, th- I think this is a valuable. Uh, I'll, I'll learn valuable lessons from it, so mm-hmm. I'll be happy to just do it anyways. I think the only thing, the only thing that has stopped me so far, and I really firmly believe this, is by like private labeling, you know, a crappy product, I think it's not going to be beneficial in the long run. It has to be, you can private label a good product, um, even if you're not that different from everyone else, but if you can build a brand around it. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to sell a piece of crap product, you know, because I, th- yeah. I really think that's going to, you know, bite you, at, you know, bite us at the, in the butt at the end of the day. So I think I'm, I'm going to spend a lot of time um, and actually, you know, I'm going to write, write down my like kind of core missions in my product. And mm. one of them is going to be, I'm going to have to actually receive it because there's so many people who have um, sold on Amazon. They've never even seen their product. Sure. And yeah. I don't want to be one of those guys. Cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. So I think as long as I follow that, you know, and it's something the product that I actually really think works well and I believe in, um, I, I think I can be very successful with that. Um, cool. But I, I do think so. So there, and the only reason I'm saying all this is because as a Amazon customer, uh, it has become harder for me to find quality products. I agree. Yeah. You know, because everyone's gaming the algorithms, but also the reviews. Right. So as a customer, I wanted to buy stuff. Like there's a lot of things I wanted to buy for Christmas or for myself, uh, especially because I don't go back to the U.S. that often. So I had to buy a bunch of crap. And I think I had like $900 in gift cards saved up um, because when I first started as an Amazon affiliate, I didn't have um, direct deposit set up. So I would just have them give me Amazon gift card credits. Gotcha. So I had all this free money. I had like $900 of free cash to buy stuff. And even then I was like reading reviews for these products. Like I wanted to buy a GoPro. So I wanted to buy all these accessories for it. And I'm reading the reviews. I'm looking at what's coming up. And I'm like, all this is crap. There was like, I can tell that these were all... FBA products that were not really well made that yeah. they, just, they just were following, you know, these formulas to, to gamify it. Yeah. And because I could not find these basic products that I wanted, I wanted a red filter to, to dot, um, to use my GoPro underwater to scuba dive. I needed like a floaty, um, mount to hold it. And I needed some other things like, like a, some cases and stuff. And because I could not find quality products, I ended up just not even buying the GoPro. Yeah. And I really feel like, you know, like more and more customers are going to feel that way. Amazon is going to say, you know what? F these, you know, these sellers selling crappy products. They're ruining, you know, they're hurting our business now. Let's slap them. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. There's, there's already, there's already a crackdown, I think from Amazon on, uh, on people who are um, very aggressive with reviews. Like I've seen it on some of my products, like, um, so with FBA's the the way you get reviews is you give away products for free and p- people review them. Um, in the past, when I give away fifty products, I'd usually get forty five reviews back. Today, I probably get like thirty. Um, so like a lot of them are just uh, Amazon just takes them off. They're like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Pe- uh, people are having a lot. It's 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 harder today to get reviews than it is before. Um, but do you think that the people who are already established and that have you know the couple hundred reviews they're gonna have a kind of monopoly now because it's gonna be harder to compete yes in a way um that said like there's 
there's new products, new markets coming out all the time. Like, um, like, you know, just now for Christmas, uh, there's, there's a, there's a trend towards, um, air, like cocktail mixers for airplanes. You know, uh, there's, there's a huge trend for like essential oil equipment diffusers. Um, and like there's new products coming out every year. Yes. I think, I think certain products, um, I think a, a lot of products like are just too saturated to get into it now. Like, um, uh like french presses were were big at a certain point but like to get into that market you need like 3000 reviews it's just kind of out of the question at this point so yes i think i think i think there are definitely markets where you just can't get into anymore and once kind of all the markets get to that point is where i think we will be in like two or three years where private labeling will just become a lot more difficult but i think uh it is i think we're not even close to there yet and you know like i'm looking at products pretty actively at the moment and there's a lot of products that i can uh that i can sell right now that have less than 25 reviews that are selling uh 20 to 50 units a day so um very cool and are you still doing that process manually or using software now software yeah jungle scout is the software i use very cool yeah and i think like stuff like that makes it so much easier but I, i actually think that when people first start they should actually do the research manually in the beginning just to kind of really understand the process of it and how it works mm. you know not necessarily you know pick the product from it but just do at least some research manually just kind of you know get an idea of what the software does yeah. um and then you know before you start buying up tons of software that you might may or may not know how to use and so i think with with fba even though there are a lot of potential negatives to it i think the positives definitely outweigh the negatives i agree uh, yeah it is it is one of the most passive and one of the easiest to start businesses that i've seen um and i think uh to address the cash flow issue that you mentioned earlier i think um i think it's true you do need to have you do need to be willing to risk 2 to 3000 dollars to get an initial order in uh and i think you do need to have money to scale so um So yeah, you might need to put $10,000 in, but you won't do that until you already know it's selling. So you can test for $2,000 and then once it's selling, then you're like, okay, I want to buy more inventory. I want to give more away so I can boost my reviews. I want to run sponsored ads. Uh, but you only do that once you, once you're already making money. So, uh, okay. Yeah. I like it. So for 2016, if anyone wants to do FBA, you know, keep listening to this podcast. I'm, sh- I'm sure we can talk about it more often. Pretty happy. Uh, so let's, let's talk about Austin. Cool. H- how do you, how do you like it so far? It's great. This is a great city. Um, it's, uh, it's one of the best cities I've been to for dating. That's, uh, it's, um, there's a lot of fun activities, outdoor activities, um, interesting people. Um, the, it's an intersection of a lot of different scenes. So there's a, there's a decent size tech scene here. There's a, there's a good like burner burning man scene. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really fun town. Uh, it's definitely, it's as far as American cities go, it's, it's, it's not a cheap city necessarily. It's cheaper than San Francisco or New York, but it's more expensive than like Portland or, uh, Boulder or most ma- other major cities. Um, but yeah, a real, really fun town. Um, I think for, for people running businesses like ours, like e-commerce, FBA, that kind of thing, I, I don't think it's the best place. Uh, I think Chiang Mai or Saigon, uh, the kind of more nomad hubs are actually a lot better uh, business-wise. Um, but for fun and for lifestyle, Austin is, has been awesome. Yeah. And also for tax purposes. For tax purposes, yes. So are you are you now an Austin resident? I am a legal Texas resident. I am a Texas and Texan. And were, were you California before that? Yeah. Okay. So can you tell me about your process on, on how you switched that over? Um, yeah, it wasn't that hard. I mean, it just took a little bit of time. It was actually really confusing. Um, so at first I called the DMV and I said like, hey, I want to transfer over from California to here, but I lost my license. I think I actually got, I got robbed in Vietnam or something. Uh, so I, I had my license in the, in the wallet and you know, I was overseas. I never bothered to like get another one. So they said, yeah, if you don't have your physical license, you're going to have to retake driver's ed and retake the test. Uh, and then, so I took driver's ed course with like 16 year olds all around me. And then I went to the DMV and they're like, Oh, you didn't have to take that. Just, you know, we can find it in the system. <laughs> so I had to bring, uh, so I had to bring my, um, I think my water bill and my lease, um and then oh and another issue was i had to get my social security card which i had no idea where it was so i had to order a new one so i had to bring all those things so it took me about two months to get everything sorted out and get it at the dmv and then you know, got my driver's license that's insane uh, that's a process man yeah wouldn't it have been easier if you had just requested another california driver's license right uh yeah it would have been easier but then um didn't want yeah there's the whole tax thing yeah 
Yeah. Um, so the reason why I had decided to become a resident of Texas is because I haven't actually lived in California for since 2008. Yeah. You know, I pretty much live in Thailand. You know, I'm there 11 months of the year. Uh, I'm not a resident of Thailand because they just don't allow you to do that, really. Yeah. Uh, so, and I'm not always in Thailand. I mean, you know, I'm traveling around. I mean, you know, I plan on spending a few months in Europe, a few months in, you know, wherever else. Um, so I decided, I was like, well, the only reason why my t- technical residence or my domicile is in California is because I can send my mail there. Because, you know, because to my parents' house and they can help me with it. Mm. But I've also realized my parents are not the best at forwarding my mail <laughs> or doing anything with it. Um, and I, and I, my goal is actually not to have any mail anyways. Like, I, I want everything electronic. Huh. So I had decided, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be in Texas for New Year's Eve anyways. Let me see what process it would be to, to become a Texas resident. Mm. Because when I do move back to the U.S. full time... Uh, I'm going to live in Texas, most likely, most likely in Austin, just because the lifestyle here is so great. Yeah. You know, it's such a cool city. Um, what I like about it is first, you know, it's warmer than San Francisco and and I really don't like the cold. Uh, it's much cheaper in terms of housing, especially if you don't mind living outside of downtown. Yeah. You know, I think if you want to live anywhere in San Francisco, your rent is probably like two grand a month. So I, I, I think so if, if we compare, I mean, there's always ways to, to save money, but I'm saying like if you want like let's say a one bedroom apartment mm-hmm. in a nice condo that has um, like a gym in the condo in San Francisco that'll probably be closer to three grand a month. And Austin downtown, do you know how much that would be? Downtown Austin, yeah, it's about fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred, yeah. So that's half, which yeah. is great. But what I really like about Austin is you can live twenty minutes north or south of the city and still be very close to everything. And for fifteen hundred dollars, you can get a three-bedroom house or four-bedroom house even Mm -hmm. like i've seen some beautiful houses you know just outside the city and it's gorgeous you know and the thing about san francisco is you can't really live outside the city because then you would actually be in another city right while if you live outside of austin you're still in austin right which is cool can i can i ask what you spend i probably spend um i'm guessing about 2500 a month okay yeah what about for your rent uh, it is a thousand for everything about, about a thousand. So okay. including, uh, electricity and internet and all that. Stuff. And is that shared or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so like, do you live in, like, t- tell me about your place is it in the cities, out of the city, how many roommates, all that? Uh, three roommates. Uh, it's a little bit outside of, th- I mean, it's, uh, it, it would be, it would be a five minute drive to downtown. Um, and a, like a three minute drive to Whole Foods. Um, what were the other questions? Sorry. Yeah, and so okay, so you have you have there's four people in the house total. No, three, three. Oh, there's me, three me people included, total. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's right. a, it's a pretty big place, nice balcony. And was it furnished or no? Furnished. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. How'd you find that? Um, friend of someone I met at in Bangkok. Okay, perfect. Yeah. All right, so uh, much more affordable to live mm-hmm. in Austin. And this is the high, kind of a like I think you could find uh, places for a lot less. This it's a, actually a pretty nice place. Yeah, like here you have so many options, which which I like. Uh, but what you also have here is not only do you have like the startup and tech scene, uh, you have everything that goes along with that. So you have all the apps first. Mm-hmm. So like when Uber and Lyft and all that stuff came out, they would do San Francisco first, then maybe New York. And then places like Austin, right? You know, versus if you lived in Wichita Falls or Chiang you know, Mai. yeah, or Chiang Mai, uh, you get it like years and years later, right? So I really do like that. Uh, you also get really nice restaurants out here, like yeah. some of the some of the greatest food, um, some of the best restaurants are in Austin. Yeah, like amazing barbecue. Went to a place last night that was like farm to table, um, but you also pay for it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, someone took me to dinner last night, and the bill was like a hundred dollars for two of us, and. In Chiang Mai, like you can have something probably pretty pretty, pretty similar for thirty bucks. <laughs> sure, yeah, you know, totally. so that's a big difference. Uh, like, so the cost of living here is definitely, um, you know, it's U.S. prices is much higher. Yeah, but I think the where you save is in the rent mm-hmm. versus San Francisco. Yeah, versus San Francisco. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I figured when I do permanently move back to the u.s it's gonna be austin because i like it yeah i think what i would probably do is for the first six months or a year i would live close to downtown just mm-hmm. to kind of get that out of my system but i think when i actually settle down i would live like 30 minutes north or something that makes sense yeah. so i like it uh so i just looked up how much income taxes for california and it is 
if you make between fifty thousand uh, to two hundred fifty thousand, which is probably my current uh, bracket, it's nine point three percent. Jesus. So that is so. Let's say you make a hundred grand this year, and if you're not making that much yet, your goal should be to be to make a hundred grand this year, right? So like you should calculate this. You shouldn't just put it off. Um, so that is nine thousand three hundred dollars. So right. it's almost ten grand. Yeah. Just you know, just paying in California. And to be fair, if you actually lived in California and you're enjoying the services, that you should pay that. Mm-hmm. But I don't live there. Like right. I, I'm like I'm. I was there. I haven't been there the whole year. <laughs> and when I came back, I was there for four days. So I, was, I said, you know what? I'm gonna legally become a Texas resident. You know, I'm gonna get an address here. I'm gonna change over my driver license. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do all that and just not pay ten grand a year. Yeah. So uh, I'm gonna write a blog post on JohnnyFT.com on everything I did. But basically, I was able to do it in one day, which is pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. Um, the first step was I had to get a mailing address. So I actually went, th- I was looking for like places that will scan and um, forward your mail. But a lot of them seem so impersonal because of these like big giant companies that are, are nationwide, but they just have different addresses you can use. Mm. And all of it's automated. All of it's like will automatically scan your mail and then forward it. Yeah. Uh, I wanted something a bit more personal, so I joined an RV club. What? <laughs> yeah, because uh, <laughs> uh, retirees that have an RV, they live in their RV year-round, so they just drive around to different states. But they need to have an address, and there's a lot of benefits, you know, oh, wow. like taxes, yeah. but other things too, of being a Texas resident. So as a member of this RV club, you can uh, be, you can have an, an address, and you can actually, ha- you know, and it's up in Wichita Falls. Which mm-hmm. is like a very small town on, in Texas, but on the border of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and they're you know used to dealing with these like you know old retirees. So they actually answer their phone. They're nice. You actually have someone you could talk to and, and say, "Can you you know can you read me this letter, please?" And huh. they'll do these things for you. So I got an address. Uh, it's if you are a, a subscriber to my mailing list on Johnny FD, um, you could, you will notice I changed my mailing address on the bottom. Uh, and that is my actual mailing address. So if you want to send me something, I'll get it. Uh, it'll just be forwarded to me um, wherever I am. Uh, and then I had to get a driver license. But reading the requirements, it's kind of a pain where you have to really show that you are, you're you're living here because they don't want just you just to you know be a taxi resident for no reason. Right. And because I'm not signing any like any utility bills, um, that makes it really hard. So what I did instead was. Um, technically I got, I have a lease, uh, up in Wichita Falls as a member of this RV club where that part of that property is mine now. (laughs) So I have a rental agreement, uh, I guess, especially if I was actually going to buy an RV and and live up there. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I had to show one more thing. So I opened a Texas bank account. Mm. So I'm now a member of the greater Texas credit union. Uh, and with those two things, uh, I was able to go to the DMV and say, here's my social security card. Here's my driver license from California, which they took and my passport. Cause you have to show two forms of ID and your social security card. And then two documents showing that you are now living here. So I had in total five items and my California driver license, my social security card, my passport, uh, my bank statement showing that I have a bank account in Texas with the Texas address, uh, and then also my lease agreement for my my mail, but also kind of I guess my domicile mm-hmm. up in Wichita Falls. And with those five things, they said, "Welcome to Texas. Here's your driver's license." Uh, on that form, I also registered to vote in Texas. Mm. <laughs> I changed my my banking details from Chase to Texas as well. And now the process is basically I have to move everything from California. Like if you're if you're going to do this, you have to get rid of every single trace of being California. Really? Yep. I didn't know that. Because technically, California can come after you saying, well, it looks like you still have so-and-sos in California, so you're technically doing business in California. Interesting. So if you haven't done that yet, you have to like get rid of everything. Got it. Cool. Uh, yeah, I'm still using... I opened my bank accounts in California, but I think I changed it over. Uh, no, wait. No, I... Uh, yeah, I think the I think what the bank did is they closed my California account and opened a Texas account with the same bank. So Wells Fargo closed my California account and opened a Texas account and transferred the money over. Uh, so I got different cards and different uh, account numbers, but uh, it's still with them and looks basically the same from my end. 
Okay. That's, yeah, that's easy. Um, I think the other reason why, like, so other things I'm doing, which I'm still in the process of, is any, like, so I have, like, my California reseller's license for uh, my dropshipping stores. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the process of closing that out. Cool. And so I don't know if, how long this is going to take. Um, but the thing is, I really do plan on being, like, living in Texas full time. Mm-hmm. So technically, I am living in Texas. I'm here now and... I'm just going to Thailand on vacation. I'm going to Europe on vacation. Yeah. So whenever I come back, it's going to be to Texas unless I'm visiting my parents in San Francisco. So it's one of those things where, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the U S I'm not moving back to the U S as in, I'm not going to stay here 12 months in the year, mm-hmm. but whenever I am in the U S I'm Texas now. So mm-hmm. my accent changes. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're, should that be a bit annoying? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's so why did like, why why choose Texas over like Nevada or Florida or these other oh. places with no income? Uh, for I mean, for me, the the tax thing was a factor, but it wasn't the main factor. I think uh, the main reason I wanted to live in Austin is just because I heard of. Uh, first of all, there's a lot of Dynamite Circle people here. There's a lot of uh, entrepreneurial activity, um, but also I just heard a lot of really great things about the city and I wanted to see it. Um, so yeah. Uh, and you know, the, the tax thing definitely helped, uh, tip the scales, uh, in, in favor as well. Um, not only do I not have to pay income tax while I'm here, but like any amount of time I spend traveling after this, I don't have to pay income tax. So, uh, so that was great. Um, but yeah, I mostly wanted to explore Texas because I wanted to explore Texas. Is your family still in San Francisco? My dad, my mom's in Hong Kong. Okay. All right. And so I, I think it's almost one of the things where, like, it would be easier if everyone we knew also moved to Texas, mm-hmm. especially, like, family-wise. But it has to start somewhere. Yeah. It's one of those things where, you know, if you grew up, you know, where, wherever you grew up, and you just stay there and you have kids there because your family's close to there, mm-hmm. then the next generation is going to do the same thing. Right. So it's going to take one person to, to make that move. Yeah. You know, and I think nowadays with flights being pretty cheap, pretty easy, um, there's not really a huge reason why, why you can't. And what's crazy is... You know, I see my parents pretty much as often now living overseas as I did when I lived in the same state. Because huh. when I was in Boston, like L.A. or Orange County and my parents were in San Francisco, mm-hmm. I would only go up for holidays. I would only go up for someone's wedding or for Christmas or for Thanksgiving maybe. Mm-hmm. And often I wouldn't even go for both. I would go for either Christmas or Thanksgiving. So I would see them twice a year or three times a year because they never came down to see me. Mm-hmm. And now uh, my parents came out to Thailand to meet me. Uh, we went to Taiwan together. Uh, now I'm back for Christmas. This summer we want to go to Europe. Wow. So I'm going to see them pretty much is the exact same amount as, as I would have living in the same state. Yeah. And if I can get everyone to move out to Austin, I, I think that that would be the goal. Nice. But you mentioned that you were going to move back to Chiang Mai. Yeah. When is that and why? Um, so everything I have here is probably going to be wrapped up um, around March. Uh, and I don't really want to stay for the South by Madness. So I will be probably leaving here around March 7th, uh, which is burning season in Chiang Mai. So I'll probably actually spend a month in Koh Phangan, uh, and maybe a month in Bali and then jump up to Chiang Mai after that. Uh, but to answer your question, why? Um, uh, for a few reasons. One, I'm going to be working a lot more with China this year, uh, importing products for FBA. So being close to China um, is, is good. Uh, B, I think the entrepreneurial community is just a lot stronger in Southeast Asia. Um, the sense of like co-working next to everyone who's working in similar businesses, uh, always, you know, like whether you're at, uh, coffee shops or at, um, the, I forget the salad place, what what it's called, but just like, um, everywhere you go, it's just people running their own businesses and you're, you know, sharing ideas and motivating each other. Um, it just doesn't feel like that here. It's it's much more spaced out. The community meets a lot less often, and at the co-working spaces, there's a lot fewer entrepreneurs here. Um, yeah, so we're at a co-working space now, and uh, I purposely came to this one because I had heard it's the most social out of all the places. So if you go to WeWork uh, or if you go to the, the Regis, you know, office spaces or whatever, there's a lot of people who are in teams or in startups that they hang out with their other <clears throat> like partners i guess or people working there but they're not really trying to meet new people and be social yeah uh so so far the chikon collective mm-hmm. has been fantastic as people super cool uh, but talking to people everybody is doing non like bootstrap businesses yeah you know they're either freelancing for other people there's people working for universities like somebody said that i met a girl and she said she teaches online and in my mind and i was like oh do you have a course or do, do you teach on udemy and then she's like no no i teach online for a university 
And it blew my mind because uh, you would think that is actually the normal, the norm. And in, in the US, it is. If you, te- if you say you teach online, you probably are a professor at a university and you just happen to teach online. Mm-hmm. But in Chiang Mai, I guarantee you they are teaching online for themselves. You know, yeah. they're not part of university. They're doing either a course, they're, you know, maybe teaching English or they, they're teaching on Udemy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I definitely think that mindset's different. Yeah. And yeah, for you other people here as well, they're, they're working as part of a startup. Um, so they're, you know, basically either employee or partner of a startup, but it doesn't seem, yeah, it doesn't seem like that many people are bootstrapping their businesses. Yeah. Agreed. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to be around that environment. I think I was a lot more productive in Chiang Mai than I am in Austin. Um, so why do you think you're more productive? Do you think it was the, the lack of responsibilities there or because everyone else is productive or like, or the, be, uh, yeah, I think because everyone else is productive, um, because, uh, I'm around, uh, you, I think a big part of it is like people know what you're working on and people know what your goals are. Like everyone in pun space knows what you, 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 Johnny are working on and they knew what I was working on and where, you know, we're constantly asking each other, like, how, how's your business going? You know, what are you, you know, what are you doing? What are you working on this week? Like nobody does that here. And so like, I don't feel like there's any social, um, there's not like, it's not like there's social agreements to keep, keep each other accountable. We, but we kind of do like people are keeping tabs on each other. And, and like here, I never felt like anyone really knew or cared about what I was working on. So do you think it's just because they're in such a different industry that they just don't understand? Yeah. I think and, that's part of it. But I think it's also because when you are working for a salary, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's, it feels weird to ask other people like, how did you do this week? Sure. And how much, like, it's so weird that I can ask you how much money did you make last month? Mm-hmm. And you would just tell me. Yeah. Which is normal in Chiang Mai, I think, or like, yeah. Chiang Mai, every, yeah. Like in Chiang Mai, pretty much everyone is just open. They're like, they're like, yeah, I made, and it, it could be a very small amount. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it could be like, oh, I made 300 bucks this month. I'm just, I'm so happy. I made my first, you know, $21 or I just got a new freelance client. He's paying me 400 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, while in the U S in general, pretty much the rest of the world, I'm sure, you know, if you went to Germany or something or England, you know, it'd be even more frowned upon to ask how much someone made. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in, in Chiang Mai, it's so nice that people are so open because it shows you what is possible, uh, what's actually currently working, and kind of gives you an idea of what you can aim for and also uh, what's kind of realistic mm-hmm. and what how much effort it takes. Because when mm-hmm. I see how much you are working, because I was there at, at Pun Space and I can see how much effort you're putting in, you know, and then you tell me how much you made, I can see where that money came from mm-hmm. versus, you know, a place like here, you know, there's not that many people in this working space. You know, there's mm-hmm. probably like... You know, there's 10 people, which is, is not bad, mm-hmm. but in Chiang Mai, it'd probably be like 30 people and Chiang Mai is a smaller city, mm-hmm. you know, like it seems like in Austin, people are busy doing their own thing. Yeah. But there's also more to do in Austin. You, you have to, yeah. You have, yeah. You have to agree. The social life is probably, it's different. I mean, I think if you have never been to Asia, you'll, your mind will be blown. You'd be like, what? I can ride an elephant. <laughs> I can ATV in the jungle. I can, you know, uh, go scuba diving. <laughs> And these are things you can't do in Austin. Right. But I think for people that want to live in a normal city and you want to go to, you know, the like a all-you-can-eat barbecue joint, uh, if you want to go to a place that has donut hamburgers, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, or, you know, just kind of, you know, just like a lot of craft beer bars and stuff. Like, we don't really have that uh, as much in Chiang Mai. So Austin is much, is, is much better for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I, I miss I miss being in the flow of that, like entrepreneurial um community i guess that sentence didn't make much sense but you get what i'm saying yeah, yeah, just kind of, yeah. so so some people still say that nobody in chiang mai is making any money everyone's a backpacker everyone's bootstrapping what I, are your thoughts on that i don't think that's true i mean you know you're well over ten thousand a month i made you know uh, I, I think my best month you know like over 40 or fifty thousand dollars like between christmas uh there was there was a weekend where i made ten thousand dollars in a weekend so like uh and yeah i know i know at least um I don't want to name names on the podcast, but yeah, I know, I know several people that are doing at least five figures a month uh, in Chiang Mai. I think, uh, I think Chiang Mai, you know, there are a lot of beginners there. Um, it is super cheap and, you know, there's a lot of mentorship available. So people do uh, congregate, but I think, uh, yeah, even among higher level people, I think there's, um, I think it, it's, um, there's actually quite a few people that are making decent money in Chiang Mai. Uh, and I think like, 
here in Austin, for example, yes, there are a lot of people there. There are, you know, startups that are doing a million dollars a month. There's uh, even, uh, you know, there's Amazon sellers. There's a couple of Amazon sellers uh, who are doing big numbers. A lot of them are not actually Amazon isn't their main thing. You know, they have a sporting um Peter Keller is a Dynamite Circle member. He has a sports goods company, and Amazon's just one of his channels. Um, but in Austin, um, it's much harder to meet people. Uh, people are less accessible, I think, than Chiang Mai. Like Chiang Mai, you meet everyone basically. Everyone knows everyone. Uh, Austin, you know, it's it's harder to run into people. People have more going on. They have employees. They have uh, schedules. They have families. Um, they have, uh, you know, friend circles they've had for 20 years versus Chiang Mai. Everyone wants to meet everyone because nobody has any friends. Not exactly, but, you know. Uh, no, I mean, it's true. It's more of like a traveler's mentality yeah. where everyone's kind of new to town. It's almost it's almost like your first year of college. Yeah. Where if you guys remember walking around the dorms, knocking on, you know, just knocking on people's doors like, hey, I'm, you know, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm new here. What's your name? You know, right. You want to hang out. And everyone's like that because everyone's new here, sort of. Um, yeah. So I think um, I think there is actually quite quite a quite a few people who are uh, earning decent money in Chiang Mai and um, and uh, Saigon as well. I think uh, Saigon is a there's probably like just a half step up uh, from Chiang Mai, and it's definitely worth visiting both both places. Um, but people are much more accessible in Chiang Mai, I think. So yeah, hundred percent. Saigon is great if you have a social circle already, if you have a friend circle, or if you're part of a, a group like the Dynamite Circle, and you're paying like a you know quarterly membership fee to be a part of a group. But in Chiang Mai is one of the very few places you can kind of just show up. Mm-hmm. And I think within a few days, you probably have 20 friends. Yeah. And all 20 of them are doing some kind of online business. And you know what? Yeah. And most people are just starting out, you mm-hmm. know, because it's this whole digital nomad scene is pretty new. You know, mm-hmm. it's still relatively new. It's only really been going on for a few years. And a lot of people, this is their first trip. They're just starting out. But I mean, when was when did you get an online business? I started a long time ago, actually, when I was eighteen. So ten years. I started wow. ten years ago. So you're but like not, a- not not as an entrepreneur though. I started as an employee for for four or five years, and then I started building things five years ago. So you're an OG, I guess. <laughs> All right. So original gangster, Derek Pankow. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Uh, if people want to reach out to you, follow you, you know, how can they find you? Um, Derek Pankow at gmail dot com. Email. Nice. You're not on Twitter or anything. Instagram. No. Nothing. No. Not wow. Really. All right. So. Uh, everyone, happy holidays, uh, and see you guys in 2016. This is insane. See you so, guys in 2016, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Derek, I'll see you back in Chiang Mai. See you there. All right. Peace out, guys. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.